welcome to the Vet Podcast for the week ending November the 23rd, 2017 with Brendan and Mark. Um, Mark, it's been another interesting week in the vet world, but the most amazing thing is the announcement we have to make and that makes it easy for all our listeners and that's we've gone out, spent some money and we've purchased a domain name. Um, so we have a website link that's easier to um click on and after much much deliberation between mark and myself and looking at websites that we um names that we wanted like vetpodcast.com etc that were already taken we settled on one we think that suits um suits quite well so everybody can go to vetgurus.com vetgurus.com why do we choose vetgurus.com because i think vetwankers.com was already taken wasn't it mark <laughs> we did try for that one and i think our, our our us and overseas listeners will be thinking what is a wanker well look it up on wikipedia i suppose um it's a bit of an australian um term um and we'll leave that for you to type away and look up so um our email address now too will be if you want to contact us and and the other exciting news is we have our first question um this week um from a listener and um the email address is vetgurus at gmail.com and um if you just go straight to vetgurus.com for the website it'll link straight to the um previous um website where we have all our show notes for our podcast so it's all happening it's all happening um what other news um is happening up in your neck of the woods mark well i was i was um keen to, we've had uh, some interesting cases a bit of a long weekend of um uh, trying to deal with out of hours things but we had um particularly sort of i suppose pertinent with the um recent uh, uh program from the our professional body the AVA um, about brachycephalic breeds we had a, um, a beautiful little pug that uh, came to us last week who had multiple problems and uh, and really struggled over the weekend and um, and yeah it took up an awful lot of time but reminded me constantly of the the uh, um, Love is Blind program the AVA have, uh, which um, I think uh, there's a might even be an SBS program uh, went to air last night to um, highlight some of the problems associated with those breeds, and it was a bit of a it, it was a tiresome weekend working with the poor pup. Yeah, I think uh, we'll I'll link to that in the in the podcast notes as well. The Love is Blind, yeah, um, and um, it reminds me of. Um, um, a shout out to Laura, my new part-time vet nurse, who um, rest does a dog rescue um, as a as a rather, um, I suppose it's really a, not really a business, but um, a, a charity almost. Um, and she has a um, dog rescue and, and placement scheme for Chinese crested dogs. Um, so that's something quite unique, and I think she takes dogs from all over all over Australia because the numbers of that breed that we have in Australia I, I think is fairly low. Um, I expect that I'll be seeing a few of them in my practice um, over the coming weeks and months. Though. So that'll be a bit of a challenge as a, a breed I don't normally see. I think I've got two on the books in my practice. Have, do you see many, Mark? I think we've got about the same number. Uh, uh, two patients leap to mind and... Um, and and they are beautiful dogs. They have a beautiful nature, and uh, uh, but they really, um, you know, always look like they do need to just 
sprout a good coat of fur and um, <laughs> and, and everything would be much better. Yeah, um, um, so would I, Mark, so would I. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't laugh too hard there. Um, so the other news I have was I had a really interesting question um, and I thought it would be a mini to- topic we can um, discuss for a couple of minutes before our main topic for the for the week uh, from a vet who who called up my clinic um, who was going to perform a, a, a routine procedure on I think it was a reptile but it, but we can talk more broadly about unusual pets and their their question was and I'm going to put it to you Mark I'm going to really put you on the spot here um, how long do you fast? a lizard for before surgery and I think we can just chat in a second a little bit about the broader aspect of what we recommend for fasting for routine surgeries for unusual pets because it's a it's often a little bit different or a lot different than what we might recommend for say fasting a, a dog or a cat that comes into the clinic where we do the standard fast your dog overnight um, and um, give it a little bit of water and a late feed that the night before before it comes in for the surgery so over to you Mark. Well, it really is a, um, a, a very, very cool question because it's probably one of the things when we have new support staff who start, it's one of the things that they seem to, um, you know, have the most difficulty wrapping their head around. They've got the idea of the the night before and um, and access to water for dogs and cats that might be going to um, be desexed, but um, when it comes to our unusual and exotic pets, um, the the uh, there's a wider range of what's more appropriate, and um, and of course the the other factor is that oftentimes we're not doing elective procedures on these animals. They're often um, emergency anaesthesia or uh, um, surgery, and so we've got to um, factor that into account that um, we uh, we can't routinely. Um, because we're not doing routine surgery, it's often difficult to guarantee that the appropriate time's left. But we generally, for most of our bearded dragons, um, we would want them to be fasted for um, 48 to 72 hours. Um, we, we're um, pretty keen for them to have more than a day without food in their stomach. Um, but um, but uh, for our uh, snakes, on the other hand, um, we're regularly asking people to um, make sure that it's two or three weeks since they've been fed um, because it's often a, a really frustrating thing to have them uh, fed just very recently and that can compromise the surgery, compromise the blood flow and, and uh, the anaesthesia can often lead to them um, regurgitating the prey and all the complications that go with that. Um and of course, the other end of the spectrum is um, uh, a topic we might touch on a bit later. That our rabbit um, patients, um, we literally um, uh, want them to keep eating um, on the morning of their anaesthesia to to ensure that their gut function is maintained as normal as possible, um, despite the the um, insult of our anaesthesia and surgical procedure. And- Do those times fit roughly with yours? Ah, uh, definitely. And what would you say about our avian friends? Um, our our birds um, are a little bit of a what, what's one of the headaches, I suppose, of dealing with the more expensive birds. Whenever we get um, um, macaws in, um, they're they're a, 
even when we've asked them to be um, fasted overnight, um, they regularly have enough crop secretions that um, they will react to isoflurane and um, and um, particularly after a, even a short procedure, they'll um, they'll often vomit prodigiously uh, even after they've been fasted. So. Um, with most birds, we're happy for them to um, have uh, been fed relatively recently, but we like at least three or four hours so that crop has a, a chance to empty. Um, but for most those macaws, we particularly want to watch them after the procedure because we're almost certain they're going to uh, to produce some stuff. And if they haven't completely recovered, if they're they're uh, if they're still a bit disoriented from the anaesthesia, then we can run into aspiration problems. Yeah, well, very similar to what um, what I recommended to this uh, fellow veterinarian. I, I can't remember who said it. it I wish it was me, but um, at one of the um, CE continuing education um, conferences we went to, um, one of the veterinarians um in answer to that exact question, said, um, fast the animal for one feed period. And I think that's a really good guide. So, for instance, snakes are often fed once every one to three weeks. So um, for routine surgeries we're talking about, you would fast that snake for um, one to three weeks. Bearded dragons, um, adult bearded dragons, I generally recommend to clients they feed it every two, two or three days. So, again, we'd feed it for 48 to 72 hours rabbits and, and guinea pigs, which we'll touch on a little bit later. Yeah, you want the meat in when they come in. I mean, one one tip I'd, I'd recommend for people who will be seeing more and more um, small um, small mammals, especially the um, rabbits and guinea pigs and even, even the ferrets and the rats and the mice, we, we um, advise the clients when these animals are being dropped off for, for routine procedures that they bring a snack pack with them, so a lunch pack for that animal. So the, the rabbits are, are dropped off at the clinic in their little carry cage with hay and food um, first thing in the morning. So they're eating as they're admitted into the clinic um, and we only starve them for a very short period of time, up to two or three hours if, if that. Um, and the same story for the guinea pigs and the rats and the mice and the ferrets. Um, and the other advantage of that is that we, we ask the client to bring in their favourite foods um, when they drop their animal off. So as soon as they, they're awake and, and, and reasonably um, okay after the um, anaesthetic, and recovering well, we, we put that snack pack in with them. And as a bonus, it also gives you an idea on what types of foods that clients feed in um, their um, their little um, animal um, because they may be telling you porky pies um, that they are feeding the hay and veggie diet for rabbits, for instance, and they bring in all sorts of weird and wonderful treats um, that they um, bring in for that snack pack. So it gives you another opportunity to assess the husbandry of the of the um, of of the client and and what they feed in the animals. Yeah, but I think that that term of um, starve the animal for at least one one feed period um, gives you a good rough guide of, of, of what's happening and, and and definitely exactly as you said at the start there um often we're seeing these pets for emergencies and and we need to get in there and do surgery and obviously we get in there and do surgery as soon as we can if we have to get in there quickly yeah so yeah it's an interesting question and um Gee, we could I could have spent um, an hour or so um, talking to that vet about it, but um, we just gave him the brief um, rundown. It was a bit of dragon, actually, now that I think of it. And we said, yeah, just starve it for a couple of days or so um, before the surgery. 
So I think that's all the sort of news I have, or apart from family news, which we've caught up with um, before we um, started recording. Um, I think we should jump on to our um, our little email question, um, Mark. And it's great to have an email from a listener, and it was from um, one of our subscribers, Tom, um, Tom from New Zealand. So it's a question for you, Mark. Are you ready? I'm ready. I just also <laughs> wanted to say before you fire off the question that it is, um, it's one of the you know, I love talking to you, and um, that was the motivation of, of getting involved in this. But it's just really exciting to think that there's um, um, people out there listening and, and interacting with them. So those questions are just awesome, I reckon. Yeah, so we, we want more of them. Not that we'll answer them all, but at the moment we're answering every single one because we've got our first <laughs> one today. Um, vetgurus at gmail.com is where you send it, uh, questions to. Um, so, Tom, um, his question was, I have been really enjoying your podcast, especially the exotics focus of it. Well, if that's a given, I think. Um, in the November 3rd podcast, you and Mark were discussing the toothpaste technique for removing the distal urethral stones in female guinea pigs. Can you use a similar technique in males or is their urethra too narrow? Or do they tend not to get them too much because of their narrow utters, I, I presume, he, 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 it's just a typo there, um, ureters, that get blocked more proximal. Um, so, Mark, if you, you um, summarise what the toothpaste technique is, which you um, invented last week, I think, um, and, <laughs> and talk about whether or not um, you can use a toothpaste technique um, with male guinea pigs with with uroliths in the distal um, urinary tract. Well, it's a really good thing to, to be reminded of the things that um, – We've said and the words that we've used to describe them, and probably on some reflection, I'd, um, uh, there's a number of circumstances in uh, exotic animal veterinary medicine where the the term toothpaste technique probably applies, and there's some of those that we'll talk about in the future. Um, but I really wanted to make it very clear that um, that it was just an attempt to describe a, a process of gently manipulating the the uh, urolith. Uh, out of the the uh, urethra, um, and and probably the the key thing I would emphasise is that um, it's very important to um, to take advantage of all your aspects of analgesia and regional anaesthesia to relax everything as much as as much as possible, and to do it as atraumatically as possible by describing a toothpaste technique. I didn't want people to think that they you know grab one end of the guinea pig and whack two fingers on each side of the and just give it a good hard squeeze and it'll pop out. I think it's um, uh, a certain degree of um, atraumatic technique would be appropriate. Um, but I do I think it's a really good thing to emphasize that many of these um, stones in female guinea pigs uh, are very amenable to um, to that just that gentle manipulation that um, gentle squeezing towards the end of rolling action to uh, to try and decrease the level of trauma um, the bit of local anesthesia to relieve some of the spasm in the urethra and um, in further answer to Tom's question. It, I, I usually find that the male guinea pigs um, more frequently obstruct higher in the urethra, maybe not as close to the the um, orifices in the females, but definitely there are a proportion of the males where um, you can um, palpate the 
the uh, urolith and um, and similarly gently manipulate it out and uh, and hopefully prevent a major surgery. Good, yeah, I I, I agree. Um, and um, I suppose the other thing to remember is we have all of these animals under um, deep sedation, if not analgesic, uh, full anaesthesia when we're doing it, and. Um, as I mentioned last week, I think uh, with the females, I do like to um, um, flush some um, um, dilute um, lignocaine um, up the um, uh, urinary tract there to to help um, with analgesia as well with them. But yeah, I have the same issue, and I can't remember whether we spoke about it last week. But I find there's a definite, um, and I think we did talk about it. There's a definite link between the. The males um, and um, these uroliths with the males that um, are being fed the um, um, the mineral blocks or the mineral um, 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 salt licks, I suppose, as the other sort of supplements that people feed them. Because I, it's the first thing I think about when um, when I see one of these male guinea pigs with with these uroliths, I, I really quiz the client: Do they have any of these supplements? It was an uh, interesting in the way of these things that um, after we'd had that discussion on the podcast, the very next day um, I had a male guinea pig who uh, who was on a supplement and had sludgy urine. And, um, and it is uncanny, first of all, how often those things happen straight after a podcast discussion, but also um, the correlation between those um, supplements and, uh, and the incidents in male guinea pigs. It's a... Uh, as you said, it's one of the most important historical inquiries to make of the people that present male guinea pigs in that circumstance because of the high correlation we see. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, good. Hopefully, Tom, that's answered your question and thank you for um, reaching out to us. Um, I think we should, um, yeah, we'll move on to that. You have a book, a book review, Mark, and um I have a bit of a feeling it's not exactly a veterinary textbook, which is good. And um, yeah, let's um, let's hear all about it. Well, it is not technically a veterinary textbook, and um, and when I first read this book, I um, you know, um, it, it really didn't have anything to do with veterinary science for me at all. Um, but um, but on a on a recent review. I've come to think that there's some aspects of it that um, that maybe I, I um, that do apply to my day-to-day life. So I'll explain why I think that's the case in a moment. Um, the book I'm talking about is um, is uh, um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance um, that was uh, written in I think um, the early 70s um, by uh, Robert Persig, um, and. Um, I managed. I think I first read it when you know I was a pretentious twenty-year-old, and um, and it was a relatively trendy book to read, and um, and uh, and at that time the the um the the probably the you know the storyline is it's a journey of a father and son on their motorbikes across America over a, a two or three week period, and um, the journey, the physical journey, is punctuated by um. Uh, philosophical discussions and um and those philosophical discussions are increasingly um focused on on a um a search for the unnamed narrator's uh, idea of quality um and um when i first read the book i was taken by the 
the philosophical concepts of, you know, riding on a motorcycle and being immersed in the environment and um, and the way that the uh, that, uh, uh, Persig talked about um, uh, being in a car separated you from the environment. Um, but my, more recently, I've um, I've probably reflected on the book a little bit more, and it's um, those philosophical discussions um, talk sort of take um, the unnamed narrator from um, through a discussion about. Um, uh, romanticism about um, living in the moment, about um, the, uh, the the more gentle and um, emotional parts of life, um, and comparing them with the you know the the uh, the more practical and uh, maybe the um, I think some of the textbooks refer to it as the classical sort of view of the world, the reductionist, the logical way that the world the world is, and. Um, and in initially, the the, uh, the the concepts are that there's people on either side of that spectrum. That personalities are um, are either uh, romantic or uh, classical, um, and uh, classical or logical. Um, and the story throughout the book is that um, the author moves from that sort of logical reductionist motorcycle mechanic um, part of his life to balance. Uh, into a balance with the uh, you know more zen uh, emotional part of his life, and I think that um, the the reason I have taken to the book anew more recently is because I think that there's a lot of uh, um, applicability for that in our veterinary world that we're so uh, so caught up in the the um, the numbers and the blood levels and the uh, uh, um, heart rates and all the statistics, the reduction of science. Um, but I'm constantly reminded that um, there's a certain art to veterinary science, and particularly when it comes to exotic animals, where there's not as much um, uh, extensive data. Um, and that art, um, that uh, the feel, that's an important part of it as well. So I would um, strongly recommend, um, uh, you know, I think we should start scoring these books, Brendan. I think um, uh, we okay. should give them a, um, a mark out of, I don't know, what, 10? A mark out of 10, yes. So what is your mark out of 10? I'd be giving Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance an eight and a half. Eight and a half out of ten. There we go. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, <laughs> while you were talking, uh, well, I have two two comment. One question, one comment. While while you were talking there, I was browsing through um, um, Doctor Google and and um, looking at. Um, I got to Amazon dot com and was looking at the reviews. I love reading some of these reviews. For books. <laughs> amazing and my favorite review here is it's a five five out of five review for the um zen um book on amazon um and the customer hasn't um, um it's anonymous they haven't put their name there but short and to the point um so the review was life-changing book no complaints prompt delivery <laughs> <laughs> So I think if Amazon hadn't delivered it, it might have gone down to um, promptly. It might have gone down to four or three stars. So um, very, very good. And my question is, have you owned a motorcycle? And the answer um, succinctly is no. But um, interestingly enough, the the um, the the 
book was given to me by um, a veterinary colleague, Matthew Playford, and we lived at um, Guildford Veterinary Hospital for a period of time early in my student career, um, and I did ride on and fall off the back of um, Matthew's motorbike from Guildford to Sydney University a number of times. So, um, so while not owning one personally, um, I do feel the um, well the wind in my hair, shall we say, and the and the uh, bitumen on my butt. Well, I can't feel the wind in my hair anymore, Mark, unfortunately, <laughs> and you keep making um, rude jokes about my lack of um, my receding hairline. Um, I, I have ridden a fair few um, farm bikes, and I'm sure um, for all the vets who, when they're out um, doing their veterinary experience um, on, on farms as part of their training or, or their requirements for the course, um, would have jumped on the old farm bike, and yeah, I think they're... They're great fun, aren't they, motorbikes? But yeah, I've I've never owned one myself, and I certainly don't want my two daughters to either daughter to own one. I, I you know, I go by the line of um, what a lot of people say, and that they're death on two wheels. Um, you know, you you just really have to be on your ball to um, ride a motorbike, and um, always be on 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 the lookout for a, for a car that's going to sideswipe you. But having said that, yeah, I do 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 like them but um maybe in another life i'll um i'll get that um get that motorbike um i think i did read that book um, many many years ago so i might have to pick it up again and looking at amazon.com it's um the um exorbitant price of 13 dollars us i think and it's also available in in audible format and i think it's also available it might even be available in a free pdf um download at this stage but uh, maybe it's getting close to being off. Um, I wouldn't have thought it's off um, copyright um, already. Um, so I think we should move on to the main topic, and I think you've chosen the main topic for this week, haven't you, Mark? Which is um, a pretty well, relevant I'm, one, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm, you're going to you, you're going to do an interview, I hear. I have, I have the um, thought that I've got a whole bunch of questions um, uh, uh, to. Uh, you know, ask my um, favourite interviewee um, about um, some of the things that they got up to on the weekend. Um, I was really excited to uh, um, follow the the development too, um, and then the the uh, details of the um, the Rabbit Expo uh, last Saturday. Um, so I'm really keen to um, ask you some questions about it. First of all, I was keen to um, just get a feel for the the vibe. How did you think it went? Great. So for listeners who um, don't know what, what the hell's going on, um, yeah, the Melbourne Rabbit Expo um, it was obviously held in Melbourne here in, in Victoria in Australia um, and it's planned to be an annual event and by the look of the success of what happened on Saturday, I think it will be an annual event. So the aim of it was um, a little bit unique. Um, I know similar similar sort of processes um, um um, continuing education events are held overseas, but this was certainly the first one I've been to, which had these three streams going at once. And so it was obviously focusing on rabbits, but they had three streams um, being a stream for veterinarians, uh, a stream for veterinary nurses or, or veterinary technicians. And the third stream, which I found was a most intriguing one was a stream for owners um, or clients. Um, so all three streams were run concurrently. 
recently. Um, there was also a trade show as well. Um, and yeah, it ran all day, all day um, on Saturday, and um, very well attended. Um, and I was lucky enough to be invited to give um, a presentation. I gave one presentation in each each of the three streams, actually. Yeah. Um, so t- quickly tell me before we talk about the streams, the trade display. It um, I've seen some photos and it uh, it, it looked awesome. Um, there, how many uh, trade sh- presenters were there? Ooh, um, probably about between ten and fifteen, I think, which was great. And 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 the majority of them were ones I'd never seen before. So there were there were two or three um, veterinary based ones. So um, a, a veterinary compound in um, chemist was there. Um, the Australian branch of um, Oxbow. Um, so um, Oxbow Australia um, was there with with Jen who runs that. Um, and there was one other um, veterinary based one, but virtually all the other ones were. Were, were bunny rescue places or um, I think there was one which was just a, a, a behavioural, a bunny behavioural um, group which would um, provide um, behavioural um, training for for. for for clients um, or bunnies with behavioural issues. Um, there was um, several that were just straight bunny rescue organisations and, and there's a couple of big ones in Victoria. Um, one, of, one of the trade displays was a, was a group from Tasmania that came, um, came up um, for the conference, a, a bunny rescue place. Um, and there was also at least two or three other trade stands that were providing lots of bunny environmental enrichment um, uh, um, gear. So I found that fascinating. And one was a, um, a, um, a lady who was selling um, what basically amounted to a flat pack of um, very thick cardboard um, that um, made up into a little tower um, where you could punch holes in it, these pre-perforated holes in it, and you could make this little um, um, little castle or tunnels for the for the bunny. And um, um, it was a pretty nifty idea because she sold out pretty quickly um, um, with them. So the bunnies can run through these this little maze of, of tunnels that's made once you assemble this flat pack. Um, and then when it's getting a bit board of, of running through them it can eat it um so i thought that worked quite well <laughs> and no wonder <laughs> she's she sold out um yeah and, and lots of you know environmental enrichment type toys um very similar i think it's a real growing market that it's 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 probably what um the avian non-toxic chew toys was several years ago so that it, i think it's exploding that that market for the environmental enrichment for the for the rabbits which i think is great because we often forget about environmental enrichment for for lots of um, unusual pets um, and and we tend to focus on the veterinary care of them and, and and tend to do the opposite when when we're treating them we're just putting them in a sterile hospital environment and we we we, we well, I certainly t- tend to forget about um, the fact we need to really encourage the clients to give them lots of things to do so that rabbit can have lots of wabbity fun and, and, and be a rabbit and, and, and have a good life running around and chewing lots of things and foraging and searching for food items. And there's no doubt that um, those envir- features of environmental enrichment are very commonly the higher they are in a rabbit's life, the less likely it is there'll be problem behaviours. So um, it's good for the rabbit's mental health and um, it's also good for the uh, their 
you know how comfortable they are at home so so yep yeah, i think it's a um just on its own just a, a, a place that provided uh, uh, the trade people who have a large range of that environmental enrichment stuff that would have been enough on its own to make it worthwhile but the streams themselves would have been um uh, equally interesting i reckon um and um I would, I'm particularly interested to hear what you talked about to the nurses. Oh, sorry, I had the mic um, muted there for a second. I wasn't having a drink um, apart from the water that's in front of me. I was, I was writing down environmental enrichment for another future main topic, um, so environmental enrichment in unusual pets. So I think that's another great topic for a future podcast. Um, yeah, the nurses' stream. That was the one I was most apprehensive of um, because I've, I, I, it's very rare that I will – be giving um, continuing educational lectures or presentations to non-veterinarians or non-veterinary technicians or nurses. Um, and, um, yeah, I was a little bit worried about what might happen then, what what the um, what, what, what the um, delegates would be like, but they were a great group. But I, I think part of it is that um, we, we were probably preaching to the to the converted um, for the for those who turned up, the owners that did turn up. But it was we had lots of laughs. I mean, I, I think the people in the other room um, at the end of my talk when we all came out, um, or the, the people in the other streams, the nurses and the vet streams said, "What were you talking about? Were you just telling jokes?" And um, I wish I was. My jokes never get that many laughs. We were just having a really good chat about things, and I was just amazed at. Um, um, the interest of, of of these clients and owners, and it really refocused me about um, um, that um, clients have a real thirst for knowledge for for all of this sort of thing. Um, and I only put up several, three or four um, photos of um, the gory bits, you know, blood and guts and necropsies, etc. But they they lapped it up and they they they, they said, look, next year we want more of that. We want more <laughs> of um, more detail with with. Um, with um, how to do the preventative health with us, and um, and while I remember one, one um, I th I think I got the best question I've had all year from from any of the conferences I've been to um, by um, by one of the owners in the um, in the um, client stream, and um, this this lady at the front, she um, halfway through my talk, and I was talking about something completely unrelated to her question um i think we were we were talking a little bit about the khaleesi virus vaccination situation in australia um and she put up a hand and i i'm i pretty free flowing with my with my presentations and i'm quite happy for people to put up their hand um and interrupt me if 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 it's sort of that um, type of audience and um I, I i stopped and said yeah do you have a question and she said do rabbits fart <laughs> and it was a very, very good question. And so I did a survey of the room and I said, okay, you're a whole room, you know, 50 or 60 um, owners um, in this room. Um, put up your hand if you have heard your rabbit fart. And one person put up their hand, and it was the lady who asked the question. Um, and and then she expanded a bit and said, "Oh, it was just he had a bit of gut stasis, GI stasis, um, and he was recovering from that." And I was cradling him, I was cuddling him, and giving him his treatment. And I heard him, 
um, um, the quote from her was, um, let one rip. Um, and um, it was just a little one, um, but it made me think, do rabbits fart? And um, I must admit, of all the rabbits I've seen, and we see lots of rabbits um, I, I, in consultation and, and, and um, through our clinic, um, I think um, until she mentioned it, I, I can't recall a rabbit farting in front of me. Um, and I, so I think that's the question for the year, um, and it needs to get out there in Twitter as well. Do rabbits fart? So, Mark, you need to answer that question for me. Well, I, I, it's and, and it, I've got to give your um, your question a full credit because it's an outstanding question, and it fits into one of the. Um, one of my little spiels I have for rabbit clients um, when we are vaccinating them, um, they often, uh, our rabbit clients, particularly those who are less familiar, maybe coming to us for the first time, will, uh, as we complete our physical exam, uh, they get increasingly apprehensive about um, the injection. Um, and I often am able to suggest to them that um, the injections in rabbits um, often elicit almost no reaction at all, much much less reaction than maybe in our dogs and cats. And I've got a theory about that, Brendan. I've got a bit of a theory uh, that I bounce off the clients, and I think it relates to the fart question. I, my theory is that um, rabbits definitely feel the spike of the needle, but they don't react to it because they're a prey animal. If they were running through a thicket of... Um, you know, privet or some spiky plant with a fox hot on their tail, um, if they gave out a yelp every time they were pricked by the plant, the fox could track them all the way through. And so in order to um, to not reveal themselves, I think they are very, very good at um, not necessarily responding to, uh, to those um, superficial cutaneous irritations. And I think um, fart, farting may be exactly the same. They wouldn't want to be like letting one continuous one rip as they run away. So I'm sure they do it, but I'm sure it's silent. So That's the SBD, my theory. the dreaded SBD, silent but deadly. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's exactly uh, my theory. Well, it makes, I mean, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with farts, obviously, um, and a hindgut fermenter, aren't we? So you'd expect there's a degree of gas involved with that. But uh, she went to top of the class. I'd, I'd tell you what, if I had um, if I had some prizes to give out, I would have given it to her, that's for sure. Um, so, so, yeah, that was the client's um, the client's. Um, uh, presentation I, I thoroughly enjoyed and they were just so in, so enthusiastic it was it was a pleasure to chat to them and um, um, see people who are really enthusiastic about their animals and wanting to do the best for them and um, learn they were lapping up all the information that was there and um, they'll be back next year I'm sure and it was uh, the the other thing that stood out to me you'll have to highlight um, the other the other speakers because it um, it as well as your outstanding and extensive knowledge, um, there were there were some other excellent speakers as well. Yes, so there was. Uh, um, yeah, you put me on the put me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> so I can't I can't remember the name of the veterinary nurse who works for um, um, Jerry, one of the other speakers. But I'll just pull it, pull it up here um, while I chat. Um, let's have a look here. Um, well, I was so yeah. Stood- there was myself, obviously. There was um, 
Lizzie, um, who works part time with me, um, and with um, Jerry. Um, and so Jerry runs a, a practice called the um, Rabbit Doctor in in Melbourne, um, and that's all she, all, all all she sees as rabbits. Um, and Lizzie um, works part time at my clinic and also with Jerry. So there was the three of us. Um, also. Um, I was quite proud that um, uh, Belinda, who uh, works for both clinics again, um, she also presented um, two topics and she's fairly new to, to presenting. She presented in the vet and the um, nurses stream. So Belinda did fantastically well um, with her presentation. And the nursing of hospitalised rabbits um, yeah, was presented by Dee, who was one of Jerry's um, Jerry's um, veterinary nurses or, or technicians. Um, so, yeah, there was a, we spread the load between the, um, what, what's that, five of us. Um, so um, we each did, apart from Dee, I think we each did um, at least two, two presentations. There was... Five sessions. It basically was five sessions for the day within each um, stream, and each session ran for one hour and fifteen minutes. So we, uh, the aim was to have an hour of um, an hour of um, presentation and fifteen minutes of talks. Um, but um, mine tend to, tended to run over a bit because I started telling lots of silly stories as usual, and um, we got off topic a little bit a few times and spoke about non-rabbity things just quietly. But um, yeah, it was great it was really good um so i've got two other quick questions i know where um uh, we're trying to keep and you know you and i could talk for several hours and we're trying to make this just a um you know so people can listen to it in one sitting um but i was keen to um to first of all ask about the topic that you because this this pre these presentations were aimed at veterinarians the veterinary presentations were aimed at um, vets who may not necessarily have um, been um, had a lot of experience with rabbits but were keen to get uh, um, you know their start I suppose um, is that have I got that do I understand that correctly yeah I think it was aimed at more more bit of a basic level I mean I'll quickly run through the topics that the, the actual um, titles of the uh, vet stream um, sessions, uh, and that they were rabbit health and husbandry, which Belinda gave, which was um, basic physiology, dietary requirements, psychological, environmental needs. Um, so, uh, what you need to um, know in order to advise your rabbit owners. Session two was clinical examination. Um, and a little bit of some of the common clinical conditions, and that was by Jerry. Uh, session three was anaesthesia and surgery of rabbits by Lizzie. Um, very important one, obviously. Well, they were all important. Uh, session four was emergency and critical care um, by Jerry, and um, mine was a little bit more um, little focused on one topic, and that was uh, session five, which was dentistry. Um, so we, we just did a bit of an overview of the main um um, aspects of, of dentistry in rabbits and um, walked through a slideshow of the, the common um, um, procedures, especially incisor removal in rabbits. So that was the um, that was the vet stream. Um, the nurse stream was uh, rabbit health and husbandry again, um, and I gave a little outline for that one. 
Handling and clinical examination was number two with Belinda. Understanding rabbit behaviour by Jerry was three. Nursing the hospitalised rabbit was by D, um, number four. And anaesthesia and surgery rabbits um, for clients um, was session five and just trying to allay some of the fears and, and talk about the advances and the decreased um Morbidity we're getting in rabbits when we when we do things um, a little bit better than we used to in the past. Um, um, the owner's stream uh, session one. What is your bunny trying to tell you? By Jerry. Session two. Housing and environment. Providing your bunny with the perfect home. By Lizzie. Session three. Looking after your rabbit. Getting the basics right. By D. Uh, session four. Digging deeper. Brendan. So that was mine. We just spoke about a couple of conditions like gut stasis and and um, intermittent soft stools and um, uh, some of the palliative care and, and, and um, when, when is it time to say goodbye with them. Uh, and session five was the emergency, what to do if there's a problem with Lizzie. So, And I think you may, I'm not sure, but um, if anybody's interested, you may be able to purchase the proceedings from the from the um, group who produced it, which was Platinum. Platinum CPD. Um, I'll put a link to them in the in the show notes, and um, you can contact them directly. But um, I, I'm sure they could probably make the proceedings available for a small fee um, because each um, proceeding was produced separately for each stream, obviously, um, and and it was a hard copy produ- uh, provided to everybody. So I've got um, uh, my. I'm going to probably put you on the spot again. Uh, this is. Um, you will well know that um, I think of myself as quite possibly the worst public speaker who's ever stood up at a UPAV conference. But um, you, on the other hand, uh, I think um, you're often referred to as the Michael Jordan of the uh, um, the, t- the Grand Toady Award. Um, you, you uh, um, Michael Jordan, <laughs> you get that. But, um, what, well, you know, one of more frequent. They had to bring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they brought in the rule that uh, you could only win it so many times as a result of um, your repeated um, success in that area. Um, but I was really keen to get a feel because these hour-long presentations, they really are – each presentation has its own peculiar um, difficulties and characteristics. How did you, like, prepare for an hour-long presentation with um, – with um, members of the general public? Was it an extension of the consult-type discussion or did you have to uh, um, um, bring an additional information? How, how did that go, the, the preparation for such a presentation? Uh, well, initially it was similar to what I do for, for, for um, presenting to vets or veterinary nurses slash technicians in that I had a list of topics I would like to cover during that, that time period including gut stasis, um, euthanasia of, of patient um, quality of life, um, et cetera, um, and, and made up a, a keynote um, and PowerPoint, um, depending on which one was going to work on the day. Um, I usually go with keynote because I'm a generally a Mac person. Um, and um, had the list of slides there, so I had um, and, and pretty pictures, um, limited text. I always like to put limited text on there because um, there's nothing worse than having a, a slide with with ten sentences of, of text on there, and somebody at the back of the room would be lucky to read one word of it. Um, so I try to put very few actual um, words on on the slides, um, um, provided them some general notes, but but 
for the the difference was compared with um, um a presentation to nurses or vets was um I just sort of went with the flow during the during the actual um presentation and and we went off topic lots of times but um that's fine because they're to learn about things they want to learn about and it's not it's not it's the total opposite of what I would be doing if I was giving giving a lecture to veterinary students where we have a set agenda and and and, and curriculum that I need to teach in that particular hour so it doesn't matter if I didn't finish all the items I had listed in my presentation um we just wandered off one topic and on to another and then went back to the general topics um and and didn't quite finish them all which is fine because it's not something that's examinable for them it's something that should be fun and interesting um so that's how it ran and and um interspersed with a few um um um, stories of of um clients and cases i'd seen and um even a few um um jokes that um some worked and some didn't um in there so um yeah so that's how it went so it was pretty relaxed in the end it was um i think the key thing i thought with that particular presentation was it's yeah it's it's not a lecture when i'm not ramming information down their throat that they need to learn for an examination it is um these people are here to learn about their rabbits and learn a little bit about how vets deal with rabbits and and they just enjoyed the fact hey this is a vet opening up about how he or she deals with 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 rabbits and almost like a behind the scenes um, aspect of of things um, from from a veterinary perspective um, that they'd never really see in the formal or semi formal atmosphere of a of a consultation or a clinic. And and one thing that um, that played on my mind actually on the weekend when I knew you were doing this was that um, that there are some areas of uh, rabbit um veterinary care that that inspires some very high passions amongst our uh, zealous bunny owners i was a little bit worried that at some point things might um might develop into uh um a more confrontational focus particularly i'm talking about um the khaleesi virus vaccine but um was that uh, uh that particular topic handled um, was it dealt with? Did people were people passionate about it? Were they um, a bit confrontational with the vets? How did that go? Um, funny you should say that. Um, I had uh, about a third of my presentation uh, listed as the Khaleesi virus um, um, discussion um, because orig- and it was my mistake originally. I, I thought that's what. Um, Jerry sort of organised the conference and she had um, mentioned um, what she thought each of us should talk about um, and I thought I was going to be talking on Khaleesi virus so I, I had a little spiel sorted for um, the Khaleesi virus and, and the different variants that we see here in Australia and the the um, um, slight controversy we have with the, the, the lack of vaccines and the, and the current recommendations for vaccination protocols here in Australia um, for Khaleesi virus. Um, and f- 10 minutes before, during the break, one of the breaks, 10 minutes before I was due to give my presentation to the to the owners, which I was already a bit apprehensive, um, I, I sat, happened to see Lizzie and we sat down and um, Lizzie said, oh, what are you talking about? And um, I mentioned the other topics I had, including Khaleesi virus, and she said, oh, 
Um, Jerry asked me to do that, and that's um, half my presentation <laughs> um, to to the um, owners, which was going to be, I think, after mine. So, so I spent a very frantic and quick ten minutes deleting <laughs> all the guys and add in some other topics in there. So, it's I think it's the fastest presentation I've put together. Um, 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 that, I was quite proud of myself with that one because we we did discuss some of the um, other bits that I threw in there at the last minute. So um, the good news with that is that that Lizzie dealt with it and she she did a fantastic job from all, all accounts. And no, there were there were no real controversial aspects. And and same with with the um, when I was um, had my session with the clients, I was I was I was surprised at how little sort of there was no antagonism at all that you you know you sometimes see at these public forums that you know vets are rip rip offs and they don't know anything and we know more and all that there was zero of that they were they were very receptive and 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 very knowledgeable too and and I mean I said probably to get them on side um, but I said fairly early on look you know your bunny more than i do and you probably know much more about behavior of bunnies than i do because most of you in the room are long-term bunny fanatics and and i'm certain that's the case so you know um, i i try and remember that I, i'm going to learn a hell of a lot more out of the client than um than they may learn off me so no it was good it was a great atmosphere so it was it was a great day um all three streams were really good um the trade um, show was was fantastic. Yeah, there was much more trade um, than I thought there would be. I thought there'd only be three or four tables set up there. Um, the the venue, which was in the central business district of Melbourne on the twelfth floor of a um, building in the in the CBD of Melbourne, was was good um next year it's it will be too small because it, the trade filled out the whole breakout area um during the during the morning and afternoon teas and lunch so next year it will be bigger and better and um, um they did a fantastic job organizing it and i think it's a great idea and i know similar ones are sometimes done um the one i can think of um off the top of my head is is um I think some of the reptile expos are similar in that they have, um, you know, more mainly client focused, but occasionally they might have a veterinary stream. But but this process of having a three streams at once for vets and, and nurses and technicians and and a third stream with with owners, I think, is a great idea. Um, I, I, I do credit to I think um, the UK. Um, vets because I think that's where this process um, originated and they've had a rabbit um, annual um, expo every year for the last few years I think and that, that's where um, Jerry got the idea from. And there's no doubt um, the the popularity of um, rabbits as people um, come to understand them better and um, they enter the the um, true realm of companion animals. They're, they're, these events will become much more important. And and I, um, it doesn't surprise me that you talk about the event in particularly the owners yearning for information. I I find um, whether it's in consult or in other forums, the there's just this absolute thirst to understand them and know them and know why things happen and um, and obviously those that information feeds into better husbandry and better care and um, and the rabbits are happy and the owners are happy. Absolutely, yeah. So it was good. So all good. So we'll have to get you down um, 
down to Melbourne next year to give um, a presentation, Mark, and I'll I'll throw you in with the owners so you can I'll sit at the back and uh, watch you sweat. Um, as yeah, I'll, I'll do my <laughs> present. I'll do my presentation on um, the research I'll do over the next twelve months on uh, rabbit farting. Yeah, fluff, um, I'd, I'd, fluffing. Fluffy. <laughs> it was a fantastic um, question. I was, I, I was, I was. Um, everybody broke into laughter. It was fantastic, and I think there were a few farts um, given off at the same time. They were laughing so hard. Well, I think Mark, we've um, we've just about come to the end of of, of another um, another week. So all of our subscribers and the the number just keeps. Um, going up and up and up so thank you very much um, for those of you who are subscribing tell your friends tell your vet friends and your veterinary technician nurse friends and um, your um, your vet student friends um, to to listen to us that would be great and send an email to vetgurus at gmail.com um, and now you have no excuse for remembering our website it is vetgurus.com so until next week, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.